0: I'm Satashma.
1: I'm Simone.
0: And welcome back to Episode 2.4, Flood Risk Management, Part 2.
1: On this episode, we will be continuing our conversation with Karthiki and Sahil. Um, So if you have not listened to the first part of this episode, we highly recommend you do that first. Directing this to Sahil, actually, because you have experience working in the Netherlands. Um, and then, you know, there are leaders with like the room of uh, room for the river and then the sand motor and all these like nature-based adaptations. Um, do you think community engagement was important there? Like, do you think, so what I'm getting at is, does community engagement look different in the global South and global North cases? I mean, I might be generalizing a lot, but I just want to hear your perspective. Like, was it important in the Dutch case?
2: Uh, the Dutch planning rather the delta planning itself is is very culturally ingrained uh there is this thing they call as poldering systems right uh so so basically just to explain uh, every the audience is that uh, because it being the low lying area the most of the country rather being a low lying area uh and there are at least two major rivers that are running through the netherlands uh, there is this system that has evolved over time where they have created these dikes. They call this as dike rings. And then you have, it's like a bucket system that is created. And then you have these windmills which are actually used not for wind energy per se, but it is actually to pump in and pump out water from your dike rings that are there into your river. Uh, now, uh, because it was an agricultural uh, uh thought process that evolved this kind of a poldering system it was like five six uh farmers would come together and they'll be like okay we need to take care of our land so they'll have that consensus uh that how that polder should be operated and how the next polder uh adjacent to it should be operated so it, this this consensus was like really ingrained and that has become main part of their decision-making process in the government or in any of the planning mechanisms. So that becomes a very important part in the Dutch Delta pla- planning. Uh, and that is the reason projects like Room for the River, like Room for the River also was something which was a, a shift that they had to make from their usual practice, right? Uh, from a really engineered approach of, of uh, training the river and having weirs uh, and gates and everything, they decided, okay, we need to have where we can let the river swell, let the river overflow at certain locations. However, those areas were the farmlands. They had to take those farmers on board, uh, try and make them understand the probability of their farmlands getting flooded. And uh, based on then, of course, the financing mechanism, the compensation mechanism, all of that had to be worked out. And over the long run, what are the short-term cost-benefit analysis? What are the long-term cost-benefit analysis? All of that went behind this entire thing. Now, comparing that to the Bangladesh case, uh, Dutch experts have been part of Bangladesh Delta plan since 1960s, uh, I would say. Uh, even over there, this dikering concept uh, came. If, if we look at the Delta, Bangladesh Delta, there are these structures like the rings around the river that we see but uh, we have to understand that the maas and the rhine river is very different than the ganges and brahmaputra it is the, both the rivers ganges and brahmaputra are really wide they are really wild rivers to to tame in in that sense there's a huge amount of silt that comes down from these rivers so what happened in that system was that of course the flooding was prevented in the bangladesh delta with that dike system but Because of the siltation, the riverbed started to increase in its height, the the silt started to deposit, so there was a time when the entire land was being uh, uh, discharged, uh, the water from the land was being discharged into the river, now the river has grown above the land surface itself because of the siltation and the dike that has been constructed. And now this, the water is not able to go anywhere. Uh, so so it is just evaporating or it is going into the ground surface water or ground water. Mm-hmm. Now, there, this is the issue that is coming from the financing aspect as well. Most of the Dutch projects, roughly let's say 50% might be the budget might be for execution and 50% might be for operation and maintenance. But over here in this case, Literally eighty to ninety percent for for execution, and then hardly ten to twenty percent for operational maintenance. So that creates this such kind of an issue, right? Uh, and 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 that is the reason that even though the situation is almost the same, the elements that you get to deal with are almost the same. The way you work with them has been different, and that has created a different kind of problem. Uh, on top of that, interestingly, the Bangladesh that has been also experiencing the salinity intrusion that is so your groundwater is getting saline Uh, now what that has done is that it has affected the cropping pattern of the farmers now when we think of the stakeholders getting involved like the the local farmers it becomes an important to understand that cropping pattern and how the farmers have adopted uh, a different system to that so because the, the groundwater is saline, earlier they used to have three cropping patterns. Now they have changed to two cropping patterns and then they have alternated one with shrimp farming. And now it has some regions changed to one crop and rest of the time it is shrimp farming because you have saline water over there. And it is a relatively lucrative business in, in, in that sense. But now that is increasing the salinity line. So the line is now moving northwards in in the Bangladesh delta because of increasing shrimp farming. Uh, So now the the recent Bangladesh delta plan that was worked out over there, it wasn't like one approach that was given. There were almost three to four directions that were put forth that you can do this approach, you can take this approach, you can take this approach, and then accordingly you can decide how you want to develop. So the adaptive pathways that we can say that that was established through these multiple approaches and then accordingly the actions can be taken.
0: Um, Continuing on the topic of flood defences, you both have worked on projects regarding blue-green infrastructures clearly. I mean we've been talking about it in our conversation as well. So this question is specifically for Karthiki. So we have all seen the recent hype on rain gardens, permeable pavements, urban water bodies, and most of such infrastructure examples and literature as well is dominated by the global north. Cities like Portland, Copenhagen, Vancouver, to name a few. So we would really be interested to know what blue-green infrastructure looks like in global south cities like mumbai how is it different and how is it similar
3: i, I talked about how nature based solutions sometimes become a buzzword and that's where we need to be careful um, if we limit them to certain solutions so what the solutions we see in the global north uh, as blue green infrastructure are very um categorized, right? You have a vegetated swale, you have a bioretention swale, you have a bioretention basin, and there are all these different types, and you can design and engineer them. Uh, when we look at blue-green infrastructure or nature-based solutions in the global south, an example would be, I mean, the, the way it worked historically is that, you um, we just aligned with nature to do certain things. So for example, um, catchment areas, right? So working with catchment areas and low points in them. Uh, Hyderabad, the city of Hyderabad had step wells. A lot of cities in India actually had step wells where they were situated in areas wherein water would naturally collect, recharge the groundwater and it would suffice the city for the year. Uh, with development, these step have been filled in. So it's really contrary when I see such kind of interventions being left behind, which were, which wouldn't fall in this typical spectrum of nature-based solutions that we see now in the literature that gl- the global north presents. Uh, so these kind of interventions are left behind, but then there is um, this urge to adopt um, these literature-based, modern, nature-based solutions. So that's where the problem lies. That's why there, there needs to have be thinking about what needs to be preserved and what needs to be left behind and what needs to be adopted. So I'm not saying all new things are bad, um, but for example if we need to adopt something to the indian context um, we have urban lakes in mumbai right so if we look at it in terms of flood management it's a very difficult problem to solve where you could use these urban water bodies for flood flood management where you'll have to you know restore these lakes have a buffer area you know make it a safe place in everything um, But each of these solutions, be it mangroves, so letting nature be, um, having buffer zones along rivers, which are accessible spaces, so that's like part intervention, part nature, then restoring water bodies. Each of these solutions has a role. It's very important to recognize that role and plan the solution accordingly. You cannot just take, um, like you see in so many Global North cities, you cannot just, you know, um, install a bioswale along the street. That's simply not possible in a global south city. You barely have safe streets in some of the global south cities, Mumbai included. So you cannot just take that and adopt that. You would probably end up with a lot of liabilities there, and eventually it might not even work. So you need to have that kind of sensitization uh, and you need to plan for the global South context. What we are missing right now in our work uh, on flooding and trying to integrate uh, hybrid solutions is we do not have a lot of literature on global South. We do not have a lot of data and that's causing problems. So if we were to design a blue green infrastructure system for a catchment area, um, it would be for a very intense rainfall over a short period. It would be for a um, very complex development pattern. So it's it's that and that's part of the work that we are doing. We are trying to take what's out there and see what aspects we can bring in um, to the global south context of blue-green infrastructure and safely uh, adopt them so that there is effective stormwater management. And there are all these obviously other sectors to take care of, right? We cannot just train one department of the government and be done with it. There is going to be the gardens department with the stormwater drainage department with the solid waste department playing a a role here. So I think the context is very different where implementation becomes different and plus the hydrological context becomes very different.
0: Something that you said really stood out to me. So it was the word "literature-based slash modern nature-based solutions." Um, I feel like that's really kind of like important to highlight, um, especially for our follow-up question. So there are like studies that show that these infrastructures it's more prevalent in high-income neighborhoods and further promoting inequity. So What do you think about this and how do you think this should be tackled?
3: I think, again, just looking at one spectrum of nature based solutions is a problem here. Um, And you cannot call something, so it, it then becomes a very narrow solution, right? You cannot, if you are not able to use that in other contexts like low income neighborhoods, then then it it's not really a complete solution so i'm i'm not sure if it promotes inequity but definitely if you are um for example in the mumbai context we see a lot of these discrepancies we have done a heat map for the uh, for mumbai in several places and there is a 5 de- degree difference between well off or high-income areas and low-income areas just because they do not have uh, enough of a green patch uh, to mitigate that hurt, heat stress. So you, there is definitely an inequity there. Uh, and then nature-based solutions need to be, like I talked about the Lalwai compound case where we are working with stakeholders to... Uh, integrate this nature-based solution for for the heating issue and flooding issue. It comes with a lot of complexity. So then it needs to change according to the context, right? So then it needs to involve all these other sectors. Uh, So just thinking through a little bit, um, I don't know if nature-based solutions per se cause a discrepancy, uh, unless you're looking at them very, very narrowly. You have to broaden the definition, and this has this is a problem that I mean I've been experiencing. You, what do you even call a nature-based solutions right a solution right? So you have to really broaden the definition so that it encompasses all these uh, uh, possible points or prop- possible problem areas you cannot just cater to a uh, really swanky street in san francisco and be done with it that really is not progress how do you engineer a solution to a different context is the key
2: just to uh, add to that bit i think uh, it is the, the, the main one of the main issues is also the application of the solution or the intervention right uh, especially in most of our context in india or in, in the global south the vulnerable community that we see which is exposed to uh such kind of risk are are also the low-income neighborhoods that are there like the heat stress uh example that kartiki gave most of those are the low-income neighborhoods uh, and that is where it goes back to our initial conversation that when we are uh, applying those nature-based solutions as well or even for that matter hybrid solutions involving that community becomes very important then uh, because first we are breaking away from the siloed approach of the 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 traditional way of looking at the problem if it is a garden, it needs to be handled by gardens department. If it is stormwater, it needs to be handled by stormwater department that way. But such kind of an approach requires everyone to work together. And that is when the operation and maintenance, again, becomes an important part. If the community is not part of it, uh, it it would be a challenge. And because most of the vulnerable is that uh, low-income community, uh, the, the execution and the application would, or rather, should actually happen in those kind of situations.
1: I completely agree like I feel like I myself like really struggled really figuring out what nature based solution actually means what it incorporates it's such an umbrella term and it could include anything you know and like when you talk to different people from like different countries they have their own version of what nature based solutions is and so this is not even a question. I think this is just a point I just wanted to bring across is that one thing I really struggle with is like I can't think you touched upon this as well. There's so less literature, there's so much like less academic research done on the global south. But also, one thing is that like mangrove um reforestation or plantation programs, which is now considered a great nature-based solution for coastal flooding is not technically new it's been going on in bangladesh since the 1960s you know so it's not a new concept it's just a new term so that's again that raises questions about like buzzwords so like one thing i really struggled with is like while doing my own research on nature based solution is that is this a term that like underrepresents the practices that have been going on in the global south for a very long time and Is this even like biopiracy? For our listeners, uh, biopiracy, um, Vandana Shiva defines biopiracy as the heavy extraction of indigenous and local knowledge without any system in place to compensate communities for that knowledge. So this is something that like keeps going on in my head. Like, is this new or is this just biopiracy? Moving on, this is one of the questions we actually got from our listeners when we said that we would be talking to you today. Um, They wanted to ask you about the... I think it's the coastal roadway construction, the $1.7 billion coastal roadway construction. And again, this construction has been started and the phase one is supposed to be completed in 2023. For a little bit of background, um, so basically even with like so i guess there's a lot of like land reclamation also happening with this project because there's this big coastal roadway being constructed and in 1991 the the regulations that prohibited new reclamation had actually been um in place but then the government amended the rules for this project is what i have learned and then again with land reclamation it's not good for the environment especially for like coastal areas there's like loss of biodiversity natural habitat and especially in mumbai a city that already faces so much like heavy rainfall and floodwaters the risk is just going to increase with such construction so what do you guys have to say about this construction
3: uh so definitely i think um I wanna refer to the development plan, okay, briefly. So uh, Mumbai has this planning document, uh, which is the development plan and the development control regulations. And I think in the past decade, uh, things have changed significantly in Mumbai. Uh, There was an effort by planners to have transport-oriented development in Mumbai, which would have helped a lot. are building the metro that is also causing environmental impacts but it's a trade-off where you have your building capacity for public transport so these are very difficult questions to answer uh one comment i'd make on the coastal road is or or just the whole idea you know we talked about global south, south versus global north the one idea that we are we seem to be borrowing from the Global North is this heavy reliance on vehicles, right? So we are a very dense city. Uh, we are building all these roads. We are building um, a city which will more and more rely on cars. We are struggling for parking. Is this the right way to go? So that's, that's, that's the question it really raises because then any kind of infrastructure project has severe environmental impacts so does the coastal road definitely uh but then it just every time i think about the coastal road or just um there is there is a proposal to possibly concretize all of mumbai's roads is that going to increase speed speeds within the streets right so just the whole vision that we have for the city is that the right vision is what i think about frequently when i think about this
2: Add to that because Karthik also raised the point of the concretization bit uh, and coastal road as another example. It's it also gives you that feeling that uh, it's a knee-jerk reaction to a specific issue and not really understanding the root cause. Uh, let's say potholes are the issue that was the requirement. So instead of looking at that specific issue. It is about concretizing the street, right? I mean, it's altogether a different argument than that 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 one is making. And similarly, every project then can be looked at from that point. What's the intention? Uh, why exactly? Like, Coastal Road, how much is the percentage of population in Mumbai using uh, private vehicles? For that matter, what's the percentage using public transport for that matter? I understand the carbon sequestration uh, uh, argument and everything that is coming. But really, I mean, is is that really (laughs) an argument in So, yeah.
0: Kartiki and Sahil, we feel like we've learned so much from you this, you know, I mean, in an hour, like we've gone through so many topics. Um, We've had like a crash course, I think, on flood risk management. Yeah, so kind of to just wrap this episode um, we want to ask you a question that we asked in the beginning of the episode, but we modified it a little bit. So here it goes. What would a flood-resilient Mumbai look like?
2: We also have been thinking a lot about this. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's something that even we are figuring out, right? And what exactly a flood-resilient Mumbai would look like? Because if you start thinking from nature-based solution, is that enough for the intensity of rainfall that Mumbai faces? Then you start thinking, okay, then is engineered solution the way to go forward? And it comes with another set of problems. Uh so, so it's it's really navigating your way through. Uh, and we have been discussing this that uh maybe it is it is it is not that one point, right? When you say, okay, now we are flood resilient. It is the kind of realization that you might have at a specific time in future that will be like, oh, okay, now we have adapted to flooding. It is it is about not draining out the city, but about accepting that okay, it is going to flood, then at least let it flood in the right area or in the right zone. And then we plan for it, sort of a thing. So yeah, it is it is accepting that fact and then 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 paving your way accordingly.
3: Yeah, I think I've been going on and on about being careful what to adopt, right? So, a huge part of that is assessing what's really happening. Uh, We talked in the beginning of the episode uh, about different kinds of flooding that can happen for different cities. Uh, And even for Mumbai, if you look at it, there are different kinds of causes that actually cause flooding. So, then we need that decision-making, we need that kind of systems thinking within the local government. Uh, We need um, to really see what's happening in a catchment area. So instead of looking at um, stormwater as a volume of water to take care of, it is an issue that's causing this. So looking at it as an issue versus looking at it as a volume makes a difference. And from there, you know, you cover a lot of other aspects, like you look at the hydrology of it, you look at the hydraulics of the city, which is a pipe network, you look at the geological aspects, we do not have a groundwater map for Mumbai, I- I'm not kidding you, so what <laughs> we've been looking for information and it's so piecemeal, so things like those, what kind of data do you put together, and then uh, based on that, decision-making is when you come to solutions, right? And it could be a spectrum of solutions. Uh, you need to compare those. The Like the referring to the cost assessment that Sahil did for uh, the options in Netherlands and Bangladesh, that is the kind of thinking we need for comparing solutions. Uh, this one is a little controversial where... I have talked about development extensively, and I've talked a little bit about the development plan and how there was a different vision. Um, We cannot let um, (laughs) lucrative development dominate this conversation. We can lose track of things very fast, and it can just become this problem that's irreparable. um a major cause of flooding in all these cities is development in the wrong places and right now we have to be courageous and take a stand against um, this this kind of push and really think about planning the in the right way and eventually like I said you have to adapt there is going to be adaptation we are facing impacts from climate change we are facing extreme events which we won't be able to contain so in that case We need to start thinking about things like flood zoning and we need to have the right stakeholder engagement. We cannot marginal marginalize communities there. Um, And eventually it is not going to be a point in time. It's going to be evolving. So uh, eventually it's going to be adaptive management and um, the time frames typically are long. but. Uh, it's it's going to be a long learning
2: process. Yeah, it's it's. We were having this conversation about this realization aspect. Uh, interestingly, we were thinking uh, quite a few years ago we used to see this really small electric vehicle called Reva on the streets, and we were like so fascinated with that vehicle, really small in size and small electric. And now in in this time we it has become almost normal to your neighbor might be someone who might have just bought an electric car. So that's the kind of realization that I'm saying that you, you don't really see that happening, but after it happens, you realize that.
0: Kartiki and Sahil, thank you so much for these great perspectives. I feel like we like, so Simon and I, like on our Instagram, we have this like, um, tiles solely for quotes, like quotes that have basically, you know, stood out from our conversations. I feel like Simone can agree there. There's just a lot of things that have stood out for us from our conversation with you two. So I think it's going to be kind of difficult, right, Simone, to pick two quotes. Um, But um, it's fine. I feel like um, we're at least going to put out this episode and everyone's going to learn from your perspectives. Um, So thank you so much
1: and I feel like we had such an interdisciplinary like perspective into like flood risk management something that we need more and I just enjoyed so much like I could go on and on and on just to hear you guys talk more about this but we have to I mean we've already gone over our time limit which is normally 30 minutes but I just learned so much and thank you guys so 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 much it was so fun like I would love to do this again we are so sorry to have blown your time
3: (laughs) timing out of the water we can't stop talking about flooding either but <laughs> thank you so much for having us Sitashma and simon it has been great talking to you and these were such in- insightful questions and good luck ahead
2: thank you thank you very much uh, Sitashma and simon and actually uh, a lot of your questions also have started us to made us also think right <laughs> that has been quite interesting uh, so yeah thanks thanks for having us
1: Thank you so much for listening to Anthropoz. Please share our episodes with your friends and family.
0: We need to talk more about the climate crisis because it is already here. Please follow us on Instagram and TikTok to keep this conversation going. Links will be attached below.